It is with great thanks to God and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that we come together this morning to worship. We are reminded of the words in Romans 1 where Paul talks about the failure to give God thanks and glorify Him being at the heart of all sin. And so we just want to stop halfway through this service and just give God thanks that we are here by His providence, gathered under His Word, hearing the sounds of His people praise Him, and we ourselves praising Him from new hearts. And I hope that is the case for you this morning. I hope that you have a new heart from the Lord, that the Holy Spirit of God has circumcised your heart, has cast off from you the life of sin and godlessness and has given you a heart for himself and a heart for your neighbor. And if that's not the case this morning, pray. Pray and seek, knock and ask, and ask that the Lord would be merciful to you today. Beat your chest as the tax collector does in the Gospels. Beat your chest before God as it were, not literally, but as it were, you beat your chest, you bow your head before the living God and cry out to Him for His mercy. If you would come with me now to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 8, that is our text for today and we do... Uh, always work from a text here at Four Corners Church. It is our desire to build on exposition, and that means that uh, we come to God's Word hoping to understand its meaning as we work through books or, or large chunks of texts. And we find ourselves now in our series in Romans, and we are in chapter 3, verses 9 to 18. The title for the sermon this morning is All Under Sin, and these words we get from the text itself, all under sin. I want you to listen as we get underway this morning. I want you to listen to this vivid description of sin. It comes from an unnamed source in a commentary by John MacArthur. And here's what it says. Sin. It is a debt, a burden, A thief, a sickness, a leprosy, a plague, poison, a serpent, a sting. Everything that man hates, it is. A load of curses and calamities beneath whose crushing most intolerable pressure the whole creation groans. Who is the hoary sexton that digs man a grave? Who is the painted temptress that steals his virtue? Who is the murderess that destroys his life? Who is this sorceress that first deceives and then damns his soul? Sin. Who with icy breath blights the fair blossoms of youth? Who breaks the hearts of parents? Who brings old men's gray hairs with sorrow to the grave? Sin. Who by a more hideous metamorphosis than Ovid even fancied changes gentle children 
into vipers, tender mothers into monsters, and their fathers into worse than Herod's, the murderers of their own innocence. Sin. Who casts the discord on household hearts? Who lights the torch of war and bears it blazing? Over trembling lands. Who, by divisions in the church, rends Christ's seamless robe? Sin. Sin. It is a reality. It is an experienced reality for each and every one of us. The opening chapters of Romans present a bleak picture of human existence. And the problem is, as I just said, singular, sin. In Romans 1, we saw its ugliness. In Paul's description of the God-rejecting and God-replacing pagan world, that was the target to which Paul was aiming at the end of Romans 1. And then in Romans 2, we saw the ugliness of sin in Paul's description of the presumptuousness and hypocrisy of his fellow Jews. But all of this comes to its conclusion here in the middle of Romans chapter 3. Romans 3 verses 9 to 18 is a rhetorical masterpiece. It is a prosecutor's statement of the charges against mankind. An apostolic, Holy Spirit-inspired indictment of human beings wherever they may be found. This that we are going to see, this that we are going to read, is God's view of us. See, we have a view of ourselves, right? And we have a view of one another. This is God's view, our maker, his view of us apart from Christ. And I want us to see before we get going this morning that none of us can escape these charges. They have been put against you. They have been put against me. None of us can escape this indictment from the living God who gave us breath, who created our soul in our mother's womb. He has here spoken. And each of us must look to this text as a mirror. And the temptation will always be to see a text like this and to think of others. To think of those who fit this description. To think of those who have wronged you. And to identify within this text their sins, their injustices. But I hope that each of us this morning will before the face of God see this passage as a mirror. This passage is also a gateway. It is a gateway into the kingdom of God. In order to enter into the kingdom of God, one must first recognize his or her sin and turn from that sin to God. And I just want to say that you were not born a Christian. You did not become a Christian because you were raised in a Christian home. 
If you are a Christian today, it is because you have come to be crushed by the weight and reality of your sinfulness, and by God's grace, you have looked to Christ. That's what makes a man or woman a Christian. And that has to be the case for you. And it may have, have, have been fleshed out in, in, in various ways. I mean, we could all tell our stories. Uh, some of us can identify a point in time. And some of us can identify a season in our lives. And some of us raised in a Christian family can identify various points at which God rocked our hearts. But, but here's the thing. Unless we've recognized the reality of this indictment, and dealt with it honestly and turned to Christ, then there is no salvation. This is the gateway to the kingdom of God. So if you would stand with me now for the reading of God's Word. Romans 3, 9 to 18. This is God's Word. It is perfect and profitable. For his people. It is the means of regeneration that God uses, and it is the means of sanctification for his people. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You can go ahead and be seated. Heavy words. Let's ask that the Lord would help us to understand them, to absorb them that he would apply them to our hearts, that he would convict us of our sin. We are dealing head-on in the beginning of Romans with sin. And so that God would show us our sin, that he would convict us, that he would purge that from us, that through the wounds of Christ, through Christ crucified, he would bring healing and rest to our souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it straightforwardly confronts us in the reality of the darkest recesses of our hearts. We thank you, Father, that you do not sugarcoat for us the message of our corruption, but you lay it bare before our very eyes that we might see ourselves rightly and look upon the beauty and majesty and perfection of your Christ. God, we pray that in, the, in this rotten self-assessment that we will have to do, Lord, that we will see the perfect Christ. We thank you for him. We thank you for his death and resurrection. We recognize 
that apart from him, we have absolutely nothing. And God, I pray that if there is anyone in here this morning trusting in their morality, trusting in their political views, trusting in some prayer they prayed when they were a kid, or trusting in some general ethical code that they tried to live by, trusting in their own works, Lord, that you would shatter that false security. You would show them that they need a Savior. Lord, we pray that you would do your work among us today in the power and strength of your Spirit. We pray that you would do work among us that is like the parting of the sea, that is like the fire from heaven on Mount Carmel, that is like the raising of Lazarus from the dead, that is like speaking light out of darkness. We pray that you would do these works among us today in human hearts. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So two things to look at this morning. These are our two points if you're taking notes. As we consider all under sin, we see first every person and secondly every part. The universality of sin and the total depravity of each of us. So let's look first at every person. Look with me at verses 9 to 12 as we get started. Let's read these again. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Here, Paul brings forward the witness of authoritative Scripture. He brings forward the witness of the Old Testament Scriptures. Which in this case, and we'll see many scriptures tied together here, but in this case is Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3. And I just want us to notice that what Paul is doing here is he is saying, this is the final word. Yeah, I, I, was, I was watching a little video of Richard Dawkins last night, and he, says, you know, they, he was asked the question, uh, this mocker of mockers, he was asked the question, uh, what would he say to God if, if he sees him after he dies and he said something about, well, which one are you? Are you Zeus or Thor or Yahweh? Which, which God are you? And then he would say, why didn't you make yourself clearer to us? In other words, an argument with God as though, as though there is an excuse for him not believing in God. And what we see here is that there is no excuse that the final word is what we find here. Paul is saying... The final word is our sinfulness and condemnation. One will not argue with God before his judgment seat. He is the living God. What case can you make? What will you say before the glorious power and might of this infinite God? Nothing. Nothing is the word. Nothing. There is no case to be made to the face of God. And so we see here the authority of Scripture brought to bear on this question. This is the final word about man. 
No matter what this or that Harvard or Stanford psychologist or psychiatrist may say, this is God's word about man. Regardless of how many studies conducted by Duke University or whatever else, this is the final word on man. Put your trust in those words or put your trust in these words. It is of eternal significance. Paul has spent chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 8, setting up this conclusion. Gentiles will be judged for their sin apart from the law, and Jews will be judged for their sin under the law. All are guilty, and all are under the enslaving power of sin. Later, in Romans, Paul will characterize sin as a slave master. Now, we, there are many different metaphors and images used in Scripture for sin. But one of Paul's favorite as he goes through Romans is that sin is over us. It has dominion over us. It is a slave master. So, for example, in Romans chapter 6, verse 17, he refers to his Christian readers as You who were once slaves of sin. So here we see a difference between a Christian and a a non-Christian. A non-Christian is a slave of sin. And a Christian has been freed from the dominion of sin. So Christians do sin, but not a single Christian is enslaved to sin. Not a single Christian must sin in any given moment. Not a single Christian has sin as its slave master. Christ is your master. Christ has liberated you from the dominion of sin. And we'll see that in great detail when we get to Romans 6. But this human enslavement is here described as unrighteousness or failing to do or be what is right in God's eyes, a lack of understanding or seeking after God, turning aside to one's own way and worthlessness. Now you have to just let each of these kind of fall on you because each of them is heavy in its own right. But these are the different contours that Paul uses as he quotes the Old Testament to define the nature of sin. And there's much more that could be said and much more that is said throughout Isaiah 53, 6 captures it well. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Not God seekers, but self seekers. You know, the language, I've said this before, the language of seekers is just fundamentally false. The notion that there are people who are out there trying to find the living God, seeking for God, and that these seekers just need to sort of have objections cleared away for them. They they need the church to, to, to be just right for them, just comfortable enough to make them feel good. And if you can do that, oh, God will work. God needs our help. And if we can make it just right, God will do a work. Or really, they will do a work within themselves. God's opened the door, they'll walk through it. The world is not filled with seekers, but those who turn aside. 
Do you see that? Do you see that very clearly here in the Scriptures? The world is not filled with people who seek after God, but it is filled with those who turn aside. Those involved in other religions. You may be thinking, well, maybe people in uh, these other countries uh, maybe never heard the gospel. They're involved in other religions, and they're, they're seeking out God, but they've just made a mistake. They've fallen into a pit. Uh, they're, they're trying to find God in the wrong place. They need a little boost or a little help. That's not the case. Rather, they are rejecting God and replacing Him with something else. That's the clear teaching of Romans 1. They're not actually seeking God. They've rejected the God who has revealed Himself in creation, and they have replaced Him with the God that caters to self The only people who seek God are those whom God has sought. The only person who has ever sought God is someone who, by the grace of God, has been sought by Christ himself and drawn. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him to me, Jesus says in John 6, only those who have been salt. And just think about it for a moment. If, that, if that's hard for you to, uh, to, to accept, listen to this. How would those who lack understanding and do not seek God find God? So, so we understand that, that people find something after they've sought for it. We seek and then we find. But how is it that someone can find God when they are not even seeking Him? How is it that someone can come to know God when they do not understand? This is an indictment of fallen people. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I can remember I was walking through uh, when I was at UNC Chapel Hill and uh, at the university there, and I was walking through one of the halls, and I was in the classics department, and I walked up to one of the professors and just got into a conversation with him, and he started to say, um, well, you know, Paul, Paul's just, he was kind of mocking a little bit. Paul is just so hard to understand. I mean, no one can figure out what he's even saying. And we would agree, I think, that Paul is difficult in places to understand. And Peter himself said that, that Paul's words have been perverted and twisted because they are difficult to understand. But as I walked away from that meeting and started to think about it, this text popped into my head. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It is no surprise that a lost person just doesn't get it, doesn't understand, no matter how many degrees they've stacked up from elite universities. Ephesians 4.18 describes it as well. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, darkened in understanding, ignorance that is in them, hardness of heart. John Murray comments on this idea of worthlessness in verse 12. 
like salt that has lost its savor, or as fruit that is rotten no longer serves any useful purpose. So all men are viewed as having gone bad. Just think about that for a moment. Imagine a a bowl of fruit that is absolutely rotten. I mean rotten. It's got maggots in it. It's disgusting. It stinks. You've got to get rid of it. And I'm not talking about just put it in a trash bag. You've got to get it outside. And you don't, you don't even want to put it in your bin. You've got to get it to the road. You've got to get rid of it. Rotten. Gone bad. That's what is in view here as we consider this word worthless, useless. Yes, made in the image of God. Of value. Every single person is of value because he or she is made in the image of God. And yet, our sin problem is so significant that God himself here can describe us in our sin as worthless. Gone bad. But certainly, the most striking feature of these verses is the repetition of none, no one, not even one. The charges or accusations that Paul has brought and is bringing forward are without exception. Notice that. Go anywhere in the world at any time since creation and you will find not a single person aside from the God-man, Jesus Christ, not a single person for whom this text does not apply. You will not find him or her. Nowhere. People talk of the the native, the righteous native. He doesn't exist. The native who's seeking God. He doesn't exist. She doesn't exist. This is humanity. The world says that people are basically good. And much in our therapeutic culture assumes that outright. People are basically good until you mess them up. Children come in good until they get messed up. We know that's not true. Just by our experience. None is righteous, says the Bible. No, not one. No one does good, not even one. The world says we are basically good. The Bible says none is righteous, no, not one. No one does good, not even one. Do you see the contrast? Radical distinction between the mind of the world and the mind of Christ. But it does not surprise the Christian because we recognize that there is a God of this world. That the world, the course of this world follows the prince of the power of the air, the prince of darkness. The world and God's people are utterly At odds in this respect. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For those things that are in the world are not of God. John tells us. The world says this. But God says something very different. So there's an objection here. That you might have in your mind right now. And that others have raised. And it goes something like this. But we see people doing good all the time. We see people doing good all the time who are not Christians. 
Maybe you have friends, you know, who are, are non-Christians, just non-believers, or maybe they're in other religions, and you would say, man, I mean, this really doesn't seem to describe my friend John. This, this really doesn't seem to, uh, to describe him at all. I mean, we see people doing good all the time, and on top of that, most are not going around murdering people. I mean, come on, really? That bad? Well, the answer is deeper and more complex than I think that objection recognizes. If righteousness and doing good are summed up as love of God and love of neighbor, which Jesus says is the case, what does it mean to be good, to do good? What does it mean to be righteous? Well, it is to be in accordance with God's righteous standard, the law. And what does the law tell us ultimately and at its heart to love God and neighbor. And if this is righteousness, then whatever we're seeing, hear this, whatever we're seeing our friends who don't know the Lord, whatever we're seeing people who don't know the Lord, whatever we're seeing them do, it's not this. We're seeing effects that are good, but what we are not seeing is from the heart, love for God and love for neighbor. We can be assured of that. There's a whole host of motivations. There are many, many reasons why people do good. And God, of course, has put a conscience in all human beings, and he's revealed himself in creation. And people are socialized and habituated to do certain things, and we praise God that all are not murderers in effect. All are murderers in their hearts, but we praise God that all are not murderers in how they conduct their lives. Yet they do not love God And they do not love neighbor. And we know from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, as I just indicated a moment ago, that far more goes on in the heart than meets the eye. Far more goes on in the heart of your friend John than you see. But God sees. He sees every thought. He sees every inclination. He sees every desire. He sees every imagination. He sees every intention and motive in the heart. But now, let's dissect this a bit further as we come to our second point. So we've looked at every person. Now let's look at every part. Look with me at verses 13 to 18 as we look at every part. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And then here we go, the conclusion. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here, Paul marshals several more Old Testament quotations as witnesses against the accused. So he's already referred to Psalm 14, 1 to 3, and now he pulls in a number of other texts in in order to make his case. He draws from, I'll just list these, and you actually can see these in your Bible, so if you don't get them, you can easily check. Uh, Most Bibles will have these noted He draws from Psalm 5, 9 and 143, 140 verse 3 in verse 13. From Psalm 10, verse 7 in verse 14. From Proverbs 1, 16 
in verse 15. From Isaiah 59, 7 to 8 in verses 15 to 17. And from Psalm 36, 1 in verse 18. So what's the effect of these verses on the human mind as we read them? When we finish reading these verses, we really, really should be blown away. We should be blown away by the pervasiveness and comprehensiveness of human sinfulness. It is amazing how how much can be conveyed in such a short space. It is found in our vertical relationship to God and in our horizontal relationship to others. It is in our words, thoughts, and deeds. It shows up in our person and in our path. It is in our hearts, minds, and bodies. It involves one's throat, tongue, lips, mouth, feet, and eyes. Do you see what Paul is doing? He's attaching it to everything about a person. This is a totality. Everything about a person infused with sin. And this is the reason why we can read in the book of Ephesians that uh, before the Christians came to Christ, they were darkness. He doesn't say that they had darkness as though it was something sort of added to them. Sin is infused into every aspect of the person such that we can be referred to prior to conversion as darkness itself. Dead. Captures it well also. You who were dead in your trespasses and sins. But Paul divides these verses thematically into three parts. Our words, our deeds, and our roots. And so we're going to look at these as we, fin- as we move toward the end this morning. Three parts of, th- of this section. He treats our words, our deeds, and our roots. So let's look first at our words. I'm going to read verses 13 to 14 again. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now, when you read this text, if you've had any familiarity really with the Bible, when you read this text, it should immediately remind you of the description given in James. James Chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. And we read there this very vivid, startling description of our speech. The tongue, he picks one image. Paul wants to bring it all the way from the throat, through the tongue, the lips, the mouth. He wants to see those words all the way from the heart coming up out to the world. James captures it all with the tongue. The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. A world, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. Setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Wow. So, we're not all going around murdering people, but we are all guilty clearly and even probably in the last 24 hours of this kind of venom from the tongue. Very obvious. Set 
on fire is the course of life. Let me ask you a question. What are you burning down with your tongue? What are you leaving in the wake of your tongue? Whose life are you destroying with your tongue? Oh, how we cut people to pieces with our words. We murder as we slice hearts deep with the sword of our tongue. As we sink our fangs into the lives of other people with our nasty fire-starting words. The language Paul uses here is graphic. A throat like an open grave pouring out the awful stench of a wicked heart and devouring those to whom we speak. Think about it. What is an open grave? When you think of an open grave, you think, get away. Get away. Because you know what you're going to see and smell, and that is the heart. The throat, the mouth, the speech, it reveals the heart. It shows you what's dying in there, what is dead in there, what is stinking in there. And it also is like a grave in the sense that it reaches up and drags men down into it. It destroys, it kills, it ruins, it uproots. Throat like an open grave. You could speak on that for a long time. A tongue that flatters and leads people astray. Nice words, but wicked hearts. Flattery that covers over the truth of a heart that is malicious. Deceptive words. Lying, slander. Lips that bite like a venomous snake. Thankfully, I've never been bit by a venomous snake. Maybe you have. The image of burning and and pain sinking itself into your heart. And the malice, murder, and hatred of curses and bitterness. Gossip about others within the church that is masked over as serious discussions we must have because we are Christians, dot, dot, dot. Or the need to pray and care for one another turns into gossip. We have to guard against this as elders. In our elders' meetings, are we dealing pastorally with the people of God or are we gossiping about God's people? And that's the case for each of us. Murder, malice, and hatred, curses, and bitterness. Who can escape this indictment? Who in here, if honest, can escape this indictment apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, we need a righteousness not our own because we don't have any. We don't have any. This is the description of our hearts, of our lives, of our words, our minds. We're darkened. We don't understand. We don't seek. We love self. We hate God. This is the human condition. We need a righteousness so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see all that. And that is Christ. Christ becomes for us as he pays for sin on the cross. He becomes for us our perfect righteousness. So that when God the Father looks upon us, he sees Christ's guiltlessness. 
and the new heart that Christ has brought into us. So that's the first thing. We see our words. Second, Paul moves from our words to our deeds. Our deeds and their effect. Look at verses 15 to 17. Our deeds. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. Support for abortion at almost every level and without restrictions. Murder in the streets. Sex trafficking of children. These are just some of the recent headlines that illustrate the ruin and misery that lie in the path of sinners like us. This is what we do to our world. This is why the world's messed up. No political party, no individual politician, no constitution, no set of laws, no moral movement can undo it. It's as deep as deep can be, and it is in each and every one of us. Ruin and misery all around. Hatred of one another instead of peace with one another. War in families and between families. War among nations. All traced back to sin. The longest standing peaceful border. I heard this week. I guess this is a, everyone knows this, but it's the, the border between um, the United States and Canada. <laughs> longest standing peaceful border. But all you have to do is read world history to see the world is always at war. There's always war going on. Because there's always war in every relationship. It is our sin. The world is a bad place because we have bad hearts. That's why. And any solution that comes along that says the world will be a better place that doesn't address the heart with Christ is a non-solution. It will not stand. It will crumble because it doesn't deal rightly with the issue and it doesn't hold up the one solution that God has given freely. So we see our words, we see our deeds, but now finally we come to our roots Where does all that we've read come from? All of this depravity that we've just read in such a short space, where does it all come from? And the answer is verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This concept of the fear of God is one that I mentioned last week, and we find it everywhere in the Bible. It's all over the place in the Bible. Because it is at the heart of what it means to be a person of God. What it means to know God is to fear God. To know God is to fear God. To still love God is to trust God. But we find this particular aspect of knowing God very clearly in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, where we read this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you probably have that memorized or you're at least very familiar with it. And what that says is, where there is not fear of God, The spring that runs forward is folly. Where there is fear of God, the spring that runs forward is a spring fed constantly by the wisdom of God. All that we have read is folly. 
The foolishness of it all is just one way of looking at it. Sin is one of those things you can just turn and spin, and you see it from different angles, from different aspects. In one sense, it is lawlessness. Turn it again, and then it's folly. Turn it again, and it's a a lack of regard for God's glory. Turn it again, and it's ingratitude. Turn it again, and you could just keep going. There are many facets to sin, but one of those is folly. So everything that we read from verse 10 on, we just take a stamp, folly, folly, folly. Why? Because there is no fear of God before their eyes. And hopefully now you can see why the non-Christian is corrupted from the inside. And why their efforts at seeking God through other religions or the nice person that you've met Do they fear God? That's the basic question. Do they have reverence for their maker? Let me give you a few quotes as we finish up that are really, really helpful, I think, for defining or describing what fear of God before our eyes is. So here's one from Thomas Schreiner. The purpose of life is to fear and reverence God so that he is esteemed as holy and majestic and mighty. Esteemed. Sin at its heart decenters God. It, it de-gods God. It rejects his rule over our lives. Let me read you another quote from John Murray. The eyes are the organs of vision. And the fear of God is appropriately expressed as before our eyes because the fear of God means that God is constantly in the center of our thought and apprehension. And life is characterized by the all-pervasive consciousness of dependence upon Him and responsibility to Him. Are you a Christian? Then that should define you. Not perfectly. But if that's foreign to you, Fall on your face and recognize you need a Savior. And then finally, Charles Cranfield. It is by his eyes that a man directs his steps. So to say that there is no fear of God before his eyes is a figurative way of saying that the fear of God has no part in directing his life, that God is left out of his reckoning, that he is a practical, whether or not he is a theoretical, atheist. So let me close with some parting implications. What do we do with all of this today? What do we do with a a passage like this as Christians? Well, first, this is really helpful because we are getting a description of our flesh, right? I mean, we see it all throughout the New Testament. There is the need to fight. The Christian life is characterized by struggle and fighting. You know, some people think, you know, that you become a Christian and then it's sort of easy. Quite the contrary. You become a Christian and now you've got a war inside of you. You did not have a war before because you were under the dominion of sin. You had already been conquered. But after Christ, oh, you have a new master who is continually subduing that principle of godlessness within you. That battle rages. 
And in fact, Paul will say in Romans 8 that it's one of the demonstrations that you're a true believer. That you, in fact, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. If that describes you, then that gives you assurance that you actually are in Christ. But if you don't have a battle with sin, you're just living life. That's a dangerous place to be. So we're getting a description of our flesh, which means we know what we need to fight. You see, as I read through this list, it, it does not define you or have dominion over you if you're a Christian, but it certainly plays a part in you. This is the old you. I didn't just describe somebody else. I described you. I described myself. This is, this is the old Lonnie that I must put to death. This mindset, these words, this, this heart of malice, these deeds and the ruin and misery that come from them. I must put that to death by the Spirit within my own heart. And so must you. We're getting a description of our old self. And he's not fully eradicated. He or she is not fully eradicated yet. A second thing to consider is we are reading what Christ bore on the cross. This is amazing. You know, it's one thing to say Jesus died for our sins. It's another thing to say that on the cross, he was treated as one whose throat is an open grave. That on the cross, he was treated as one whose mouth is full of curses and bitterness, whose feet are swift to shed blood. He was treated as one who has the venom of asps under his lips. God treated Christ as a vile sinner so that he through Christ would not condemn you Christian forever in hell that is why Christ died and so when you see a list like this your mind goes to praise Christ because you recognize he died for these things I've seen these things in me and he bore them on the tree God punished Christ for my wicked mouth and my wicked thoughts and my wicked deeds. Gratitude for Christ. We also see that this is why we need grace. Christianity is not a moral system. Christianity is not a self-help mechanism. Christianity is not therapeutic in nature. It is not for your personal fulfillment. Christianity is the only way that we come to escape this predicament. The grace of God. God before time began choosing to save some, sending His Son to save those, His sheep, His bride, His church. And then by the Holy Spirit, drawing to Himself those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, who are darkness, who are alienated from God. Drawing us to Himself by His grace. A text like this shatters the notion 
that we're just neutral. We're just sort of living through this life and we can choose God or we can choose sin. No one seeks God. No one understands. There's no hope for a sinner apart from the free, unmerited grace of God. That's it. And that's why I say here this morning even, if God has shown you that you're undone before him, that you're not a Christian, you have but one recourse. And that is to cry out to God for his mercy and to repent and believe by his grace and take hold of Christ because he has taken hold of you. We cannot go anywhere from this state, this condition. We have to be taken somewhere else by another. Let's pray. Father we thank you for your forgiveness of sin Lord for those of us who are Christians we recognize freshly today Lord what you've saved us from God and we see it we see it in ourselves you are so merciful. As a patient father, you discipline, you shepherd, you guide, you perfect, you sanctify through Christ. And to think one day, Father, that we will be with you and we will, through and through, from the innermost recesses of our hearts to every action, we will be perfect as Christ. What an unfathomable thought. We praise you for this great hope that we have. You who have freed us from sin will one day fully eradicate sin from our lives. For that we praise you, God. We pray for our church. We pray that we would take sin seriously. Lord, if there's a brother or sister here among us this morning engaged in a repeated sin, Lord, that you would just show them the folly of it all. Give them grace, Lord, to turn and follow you. Would this sermon today, this text today, be a means that you use to do that, to help them to flee from this sin. And God, I pray for those among us today perhaps who are not really Christians. Everyone in their lives may think that they are a Christian. But maybe, Lord, today you've helped them to see that they're not. I pray, Father, that they would call out to you. That they would hear the words of Romans 10, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. No one who believes in him will be put to shame. That they would trust these words. As many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Lord, that they would receive these words and that they would trust Jesus. Father, help us all, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.